Hello, this is Rabbi Mark Soloway. Welcome to A Dash of Drush, weekly reflections on our world through the lens of Torah. Hello, this is the first Dash of Drush of this decade in 2020, and I'm very honored and delighted to be here with a friend, a colleague, someone who I've collaborated with on various projects in the 15 years that I've been a rabbi in Boulder, Colorado, my friend Rabbi Tietze Firestone. Hi. Hi. And Tietze um, wrote an extraordinarily wonderful book that came out last year called Wounds into Wisdom, Healing Intergenerational Jewish Trauma. And we're going to have a conversation um, about some of the research and work of this this wonderful book, um, relating it a little bit to the ancestral trauma that we see in these these uh, parshiot, these these Torah readings, as we end the book of Genesis this week, and just having a little bit of a conversation about. It. I'm also very um, delighted that um, Rabbi Tietzer Feierstein is going to be a guest at Bonnet Shalom this coming Shabbat. So, uh, in advance of that, we're going to just set the stage for a deeper conversation that we're going to have in community on, on Friday night at Bonnet Shalom. So, first of all, as I just said, here we are this week, we end Sefer Bereshit, the first book of the Torah, and it, we have this reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. Joseph sees his own father for the first time for 20 years. There's been a lot of trauma in that family. <laughs> And what seems to be on the surface, like you know, um, healing and reconciliation, actually is not so straightforward. I think, and I'm just wondering, first of all, like how the the stories of the family dynamics that we see in the Torah kind of play into your your work in in contemporary um, families and contemporary ancestral traumatic situations. Yes, it's, it's really all there in Genesis. Uh, this first book of Torah is such a template for the understanding of intergenerational legacies of all kinds. You know, the incredible richness and vision, and uh, the so the motivation for justice and for a good life that's set down by Avraham Avinu, Abraham, and and Sarah, and uh, so wonderful, uh, important resources that we draw upon and then there's all kinds of drama as you say and trauma <laughs> and uh, you know it's it's really like you, you don't need to go very much farther to to make the case that uh, what we seal off from the secrets the uh, the uh, inter in the intrigues that are not resolved all the all the unresolutions in one generation have an imprint have a rishimu, as we call it in mm. Hasidic lore, uh, they make an, they have an imprint, and the next generation is almost, uh, whether or not they want to, they inadvertently come into this legacy, and they have to somehow work it out. And so it passes down. So anything that's a secret, anything that goes underground, for instance, <laughs> we just passed, you know, the, the whole uh, rich, rich story of Joseph and his brothers, but that... Uh, the secret about Dina, the, that comes out in Vaichi, you know, in terms of the blessings that cannot be given to 
Shimon and Levi and the the intrigue of Shimon and Levi who just who perpetrated who have the, been uh, such an act of horrible violence of the, the revenge for the, the vengeance for uh, for Dina's episode uh, but but uh, there's also this moment you know where um, Jacob dies in mm-hmm. this Pasha and then immediately the brothers say uh oh that's right now Joseph's that's right. really going to reveal his true that's colors right. and he's going to want to kill us and he's going to get all angry I mean that's so Joseph in the last Pasha thought that he really had cleared the decks and he said don't worry don't don't despair uh, you know this is uh, uh, God wanted it this God way. wanted it this way this we were all pawns in Hashem's in God's game and um, God sent me to Egypt to be to provide bread, and and he he tried to let that bad secret, that festering secret, and all the guilt and shame around it come out, and he did so on his side. But on the other, on the brother's side, there's still all their guilt and shame. And so, as soon as Jacob dies, as you say, they clutch and think, "Oh my God, we have to act defensively," and uh, this is because they still are harboring so much of the trauma of what they did um, and haven't really done the work uh, to to clear themselves and forgive themselves. So yes, so uh, all of these things travel from one generation to another, uh, unrequited love and uh, and aborted lives, you know, Rachel's death, her early death uh, at Benjamin's birth, you know, that is a terrible pain that carries on into Benjamin's life, that carries on into Joseph's, and certainly has, we see in this Parsha, on his deathbed, Jacob is, you see how it has eclipsed his entire life. And that, you know, that, uh, we could talk about that for hours, really, like mm-hmm. what happened there and what was between them with the whole, the Trafim and, the, and her father and all that unfinished business that left with her as she made the escape from from Lavan's house. Anyway, just to say, in short, <laughs> in short, Genesis is just rife with all kinds of intergenerational material that's traveling cross-generational, cross looking to, for tikkun, looking for repair. And that actually happens in all of our families, too, where the most sensitive person in the new generation usually senses or it lands in their lap uh, this unworked unworked business and then uh, I, I you know we have to we're, we have to start doing our therapy or our some form of repair work for the leftovers how how does that play out in your experience I mean therapy yes but how else have you seen families heal their trauma whether cross generations or even in the actual generation that they're living. Yeah, I think uh, when we have secrets, when we have stones that are unturned, that's the most uh, the most toxic. And so, uh, looking at genie.com, ancestry.com to start asking questions of age, age, aged aunts or uncles or parents as we as we can get stories. As just asking respectfully. What went on? What was it like to live through the war? What was it like to lose a child? What you know, just asking uh, innocent questions and starting to uh, put things together. What w- what was the setting of my birth? What was the setting of my parents mm. when they got married? What mm. was in the air 
what was in the water, so to speak. And uh, doing the work either in therapy, there's a lot that can be done uh, out of therapy as well, just uh, turning over stones, like I said. Mm. One of the things that I found, and it was new to me, or mostly new to me, one of the things that I found so incredibly compelling in the book was when you talk about the epigenetics and the fact that people can, across generations, inherit patterns that have come from ancestors they never That's knew. Right. It's just can you, can you say something about that? It is astonishing. Some of the examples that you give, maybe you can talk about some of the examples yeah. you quote in the book. Part of uh, why this is a hot topic now and part of why this book, Wounds into Wisdom, has come out now is because, Dafka, because of the research that's coming out of uh, clinical studies in neuroscience labs and in epigenetic labs testing uh, different generations. So famous, uh, many of these studies, by the way, are coming out of animal behavior labs, but there's much evidence now. Uh, for instance, the Dutch hunger wars, the, uh, the, the winter of the Dutch hunger winter, I should say, the winter of 44 uh, and 45 when the Nazis had an embargo around Holland and all the pregnant moms who were starving, literally. It was understood that their babies, that their fetuses would suffer. But now that we have the data in the 90s and in the aughts, we started getting data on their grandchildren. The grandchildren of these, and the great-grandchildren now of these pregnant women have staggering statistics of mental health issues, obesity, heart disease, all kinds, all manner of things, but especially uh, mental illness. So. Um, here's a story that doesn't come from my book. It comes from John Bradshaw, actually, who was talking about epigenetics way before that word ever was coined. Uh, there was a, a, uh, a person that he dealt with in his practice who was, at eight years old, started to develop uh, uh, every February 14th a, ra a terrible rash on his neck. And it lasted. As a little boy, he went to all the doctors, and it lasted for... 10 days and then it was over and the doctors could not figure out what that was. And every February 14th, he got this rash. Finally, when he was 18, his father on his deathbed, his mother was dead, his father on his deathbed uh, told him that his maternal grandmother had committed suicide by slitting her throat. I'm sorry, this is a little graphic, slitting her throat on, on February 14th and that his mother, whom he really didn't know, this little boy, uh, who was now 18, uh, had also been so grief-stricken that killed her own self uh, several years later at February 16th. So during this period, and he didn't know anything about that. His father had remarried. He never really knew his birth mother, but somehow in his body, in his psyche, that, that trauma and that horrendous, shameful family secret, which had been hidden, went into his psyche and went into his, his body intelligence and came out every year. As soon as he learned this, of course, it never happened again. Wow. He didn't need to. It was, it's as if the body-mind was trying to get his attention and had recorded some trauma that needed to come to the surface. And as soon as it be, became conscious on the father's deathbed, it stopped. How does, the, how does the world of science try to explain that? I mean, is there scientific... There is. 
Uh, I mean, that, I assume. I mean, epi- epigenetics is a, a scientific yeah. term. It's not a spiritual term. Right? No, it's not. It's not at what all. It Epi mean? means uh, upon or above, and genetics is are the uh, the DNA strands that transmit characteristics. So, what is understood now is that the these uh, extreme life stresses and traumas don't change our genetic code, but they are recorded on top of epi the genes, genetic. So on top of the genes, it's transmitted. And what that means, basically, and I'm not a scientist, but what I understand is that, that uh, those uh, methylation strands on top of the genes turn off and on. They affect the gene expression. So a person is uh, who has something in their grandparents or in their parents' uh, epigenetics is less likely to be able to handle stress, or they will be much have a greater propensity for PTSD. Uh, one of the great big studies is I mentioned in the book is on the front in Israel. Uh, the chayalim, the the young soldiers who are from Holocaust, uh, everybody you know everybody in Israel has trauma in their background because even the you know the Mizrahi community too, but especially Holocaust survivor background. Those chayalim, those soldiers, are understood to be have a much greater, a much less resilience, and will go f- fall right into PTSD uh, after some incursion or some uh, something on the front. So they're much less likely to be put back in the front. It's understood that these kids have a, a proclivity for stress, and their gene expression is less st- strong because of their epigenetic background. And when you were saying before about sometimes the work is just about, you know, turning over the stones and hearing the stories that you never heard before. I mean, in a case like that that you're talking about, I mean, are these people who aren't aware of the stories that their ancestors went through? Does something change once they know more about their the history of their ancestors? Well, conscious awareness is a big part of it, but also grief, grieving, grieving and right. mourning is really uh, a really an important piece. Uh, doing the work that wasn't done. Often our ancestors didn't have the time. They were running or they were being displaced or they were in DP camps and they didn't have the wherewithal, they didn't have the bandwidth to or the safety to sit and grieve the people that they had lost. And yet the grief gets stuck. I'll tell stories on Friday night about uh, how nightmares are heritable yeah. and Actual, they don't have the research data on that yet. They don't understand, but that is an uh, understood in the third generation after the Holocaust that these grandkids who are millennials uh, have the ancestors. They have their ancestors' nightmares. How is that possible? Um, so working with them, getting support, going into three gen or two gen mm-hmm. support groups, at, you know, post Holocaust. Uh, survivor uh, support groups are really important. Doing any kind of any kind of therapy, any kind of storytelling, any kind of journaling. There's so many ways, but basically we're working we're working through our our nervous system because with epigenetic legacies we basically have the same symptomology. Uh, we have this kind of onus, this kind of uh, like a burden in our beings that acts itself out as anxiety or sense of guilt or just an unsafety in the world. How many of us feel 
unsafe just being alive. And some of that is, uh, is objective fact right now, and many of us feel there are good reasons for feeling unsafe. But uh, some of us, you know, just have always had that since the get-go. And you and I have both, I'm sure, known children of survivors where their parents never, ever spoke about what happened, right. and yet there were behaviors that would be so... You know, like I remember hearing one story from someone I know who's, who's both parents were Holocaust survivors and, you know, one day just out of the blue, the mother would just close all the shutters and, and lock the doors and just this, this terror and terror and paranoia. And the way that impacted the, those, I mean, that's like a tangible, it's not like a epigenetics in a sense, right. it's like a direct, <laughs> the way the trauma plays into that second generation. And there's so much work being done That's on right. that, right? Second and third generation, like you alluded to. Second and and, and also we see this uh, so strongly in the Converso community, mm -hmm. uh, where there's a a menorah on the mantelpiece, but shh, 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 don't you know we never light it, or we have all kinds of anxiety about it, but we don't know why. And so so all mm -hmm. of these, this is like a legacy that sometimes for 500 years, it's in the Mizrahi community very very strongly as well for being chased out or being public with your Judaism, for example, is, uh, you know, the tremendous uh, trauma of what, you know, having to hide and feeling shame about about our, our existence. And so, I mean, wasn't gonna, gonna go there necessarily, but the, the, the reality is that many Jews right now are feeling so afraid with the resurgence of anti-Semitism globally. And I think That's right. some, some, some of us are going to respond by thinking we have to go back into hiding and not be proud about our identities and That's so on. Right. It's, it's so sad. I, I know you and I have both, as rabbis in the community, have, have had calls from people who are barely identified as Jews saying, Rabbi, I know I did after Charlottesville in 2017. I, I can't, I don't know what's going on with me. I don't even, I barely even identify as a Jew and yet I, I'm feeling so scared. It's like I'm living in 19... 33 Germany and I'm, I'm having anxiety attacks now mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily I mean there is something to be said for uh, a tribal unconscious as well and Jung talked about that a cultural unconscious mm -hmm. where uh, it's not necessarily even in your family line but it's in our tribal line that we uh, have suffered for so many centuries and so it's there's an imprint in us of this anxiety and actually if we look at that there's an intelligence to that because we are still around where mm -hmm. we've survived and it's largely because we have been expecting that shoe to drop and we have that bag packed in our closet and we have you know because we have that hypervigilance it's not always a bad thing there's always a, also a positive component of that that it's kept us resilient and it's kept us mm -hmm. very aware even though our nervous systems are a little uh, spooked <laughs> a lot <laughs> I think, you know, you and I are both in the tribe as, as rabbis and leaders, but I think you and I are both also um, universalists in, in, in many ways, appreciating um, all people and all cultures and all religions and the, the truths that they bring down. So I've had some people actually ask me, well, um, you know, I converted to Judaism or, or I'm not Jewish, so, I mean, that book's not for me, obviously, right? Because yeah. it's healing inter intergenerational Jewish trauma. Yeah. I'm assuming, I mean, I've read the book, but obviously yeah. some of the themes are universal themes They're about family universal. trauma. And there really isn't any ethnicity that hasn't, that doesn't have its own 
uh, and bloodline that, do, that don't have their own legacies of trauma that need to be worked through. You know, we're in this country side by side with the African-American uh, population and, you know, the, the, the imprint of being abducted from one country and dragged and chained and enslaved and how we are acting that out now. Uh, just, you know, 200 years later uh, and then some, there is such a trauma legacy. The, Af the, the Native American tribes are very, very on top of it. And, and their research is... We're on land. We're on their ancestral that's land. That's right. And they talk very cogently, many of them, about uh, what the imprint of having been having had their children taken away and put in boarding schools and, and in many cases abused and their hair cut and their language prohibited, etc. So, you know, we're in the we're in the thick of it and uh, Irish Americans, wherever I wherever I go, I feel that there's uh, I, I'm learning so much. I was in San Quentin last month and uh, teaching a group of about 60 men, mostly men of color, and it was obviously not anything to do with Judaism or Jewish legacies. It was all about the ancestral legacies that they were carrying themselves and what makes us do the things we we do. And some of this is structural injustices because of our our class and our you know our economic standing in our culture. But some of it is um, my father, my mother was raped. Uh, and uh, and and her children had that imprint, and now I'm doing this. Or uh, my father murdered someone, and I'm still carrying the onus of his of his, and I acted it out in this way. They the people in San Quentin really understood all about this, mm. the ancestral legacies. So no, it's not a Jewish. You don't have to be Jewish to be to have a trauma <laughs> to have legacy. A family trauma. <laughs> Oh, every family has it. Every family has it. And every family has its own secrets. And yes. uh, as aware human beings, uh, our work is to to open up secrets and talk about them so that they don't have this uh, kind of a, an undertow from beneath uh, that, that really affects our children and our children's health and our own health. Mm. So I, I want to say as we, as we sort of draw to a close here, you know, Jewish tradition has it that when we end a book of Torah, we say chazak, chazak, v'nit chazek, which is about this sort of blessing mm. of being given strength as we make a transition from the end of one book into the beginning of another. And, yeah. and then we begin the book of Shemot, Exodus, which begins with, you know, the Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph and, and the whole beginning of that trauma of, of, of our people going into slavery. Um, but the chazak, chazak, it's like I... Uh, as you said earlier, we, that there's a lot to be afraid of in our world. There's some very ugly forces that are uh, emerging and um, resurfacing forces of hatred. And but I but as we enter this new decade, 2020, uh, in spite of or maybe even because of all of the things that we can be afraid of, I'm wondering if you have a anything that you're feeling you could turn into a, a, a hopeful and blessing of um, optimism for, for the decade. I mean, there, there, mm. there are things that we can feel hopeful about, aren't oh, there? So much. And I, I think what comes to mind right away, first of all, we have each other. And we, we have built all kinds of bridges in the community, uh, within the Jewish community, but also beyond, uh, with other uh, faith-based groups and 
uh, humanistic groups. But I would say when, when you say that, Mark, I, I, I feel uh, we don't call upon our ancestral strengths enough. Like there's so much richness and sagacity and, and I think power from our uh, forebears that we don't call upon because we are in a culture that tells us, oh, once you're dead, you're dead. But our tradition, our ancient tradition, and all the ancient traditions in the, in the, in the world, uh, all the ancient cultures say that in the other dimension, the ancestors are trying and wanting to help us and that you can mm. call upon their strength and that you can actually access power by, uh, our, from our Avot and Imahot. That's, that's, it's in our Amida, but we don't do that enough. And so I'm talking not about the people who were blasted out of the, their, you know, in Auschwitz or, you know, out of this life. I'm not talking about people who aren't well, but I, there are so many of our ancestors who, who lived ripe and sage lives. And I'm, I'm thinking about Reb Zalman. I was thinking, I, I thought you were, and I was too. <laughs> and Reb Zalman, a beloved teacher for Rebeim, both of us. who are on yeah. the other side, who are just begging to help us. But we have to suspend our disbelief and we have to call upon them and say, and every time I have done that, I have gotten some unusual, surprising uh, chazaka, like a, you know, mm. empowerment. So I do believe that it's not, you know, there's one God, and yet we believe in Judaism that our avot and imahot, our ancestors, are intercessors. Uh, they can intervene on our behalf, and so we do need to invoke them and, uh, and ask for help because we are... We're in Kaka land. <laughs> we really are. We're, we're we need all the help we can get. Absolutely, uh, as we turn this corner. And Chazak Chazak is beautiful that you said that because, uh, you know, we're between between Bereshit and Shemot, between Genesis and Exodus. We're in a liminal zone, just like we are between 2019 and 2020. We're we're walking through. We don't. It's so much unknown, and so we want to remember Chazak Chazak. You know that there is power available to us, psychic power and spiritual power available to us, but we do have to call upon it and mm. surrender ourselves to greater forces than our own. Beautiful. Chazak, chazak. V'nid chazak. V'nid chazak. It's been so lovely talking to you. Likewise. My friend, my teacher, look forward to deepening the conversation later on. Amen. Chazak, chazak. Thank you for listening to A Dash and Drush. We will see you next time.